two weeks ago, two weeks ago, two weeks ago, um, a really sad thing happened. I was, it was very early on a, uh, a weekday morning, and uh, in fact it was six o'clock in the morning, and my husband had left very early for needing to be down here in Marin County that day. And he called me from his car, um, and uh, I was up, but he said, are you listening to the news? And I said, no, I'm not. And he told me that um, a helicopter rescue team from Santa Rosa had uh, gone down in the storm. There'd been a very heavy rainstorm the night before, very wild weather. And he had heard it on the news that uh, a helicopter had gone up with one of the paramedic rescue teams had gone from Santa Rosa up toward Ukiah and uh, to get somebody who was in medical need. And the weather had gotten so impossible that the helicopter had turned around and had crashed into a hillside. And the pilot and the two nurses on board were killed. And uh, even as I tell you the story, I, I felt, as I'm sure you do, terribly bad to hear the news and really frightened because there are three rescue teams that fly out of Santa Rosa, out of the same rescue operation, but on a three-day rotation schedule, three pilots and six nurses. And one of the nurses is a friend of ours. And in truth, the first thing I thought was, may it not be Laura. May it not be Laura. And I, I, knew that, I knew that that's what I thought. I thought, oh. And I thought about Laura, and I thought about her husband, and I thought about their twin children, eight years old. And I couldn't call them at 6 o'clock in the morning. And I needed to wait until 8 to call. And all the while that I was thinking, may it not be Laura, I was also thinking, Whoever it is, it is somebody's Laura. Somebody's Laura has gone down. And I, I watched because I wanted very much to feel somebody's Laura. And I kept thinking, may it not be Laura. And at 8 o'clock, I called their home and Laura answered. And I was so relieved. I was actually holding onto the table when I called. And I was very relieved. And we talked about it. And I, I said, you know, I, I really, I wanted so much for it not to be you. Tell me who it was. And she said, well, it was a, a, a pilot. Um, a man without a family was uh, a nurse who had just recently married. And another nurse, a young mother like Laura, with two young children. And I thought about the fact then and afterwards that it's always somebody's Laura, that every story that we read in the newspaper about people hurt in this way and that way and natural calamities and unnatural calamities, it's somebody's Laura. And I, I think so much about the fact that we feel, I feel, my Laura's in a special way, that I, I think a lot about how would it be if I loved everyone with the same impartial love. I wonder whether that would make it sometimes easier or whether it would be absolutely unbearable because it's always everybody's Laura. Whether I would feel every blow with the same impact. I thought about it a lot because uh, 
Well, first of all, because it happened and because of what went on in my own heart and mind. And The end of the story, by the way, the end of that little piece of story, is I said, uh, would you fly tomorrow then? And she said, no, the crews have been grounded for a day because they need a day off. I'll fly the next day. And I said, you are right to fly? And she said, yeah. She said, everybody wants these jobs very badly. They're really important jobs. We feel good that we're doing it. Life is a risky business. I thought about the meta riddle. Uh, there's a there's a uh, riddle in scripture. My friend um, Sharon Salzberg, who is my meta guru, my meta teacher, my meta benefactor for having taught me it, um, studied in. Uh, Burma with Upandita, uh, a metta master. And she told, tells the story of her practicing there and about her doing, uh, at, at some point after she'd been practicing for a while, Upandita asked her what she later learned is a classical metta riddle, riddle. He said, um, okay, here's the situation. You're walking in a jungle and uh, you're walking with your uh, benefactor and your dearly beloved friend and a neutral person. So you can see the progression that we're going to be working with this week. And uh, your enemy, because the scriptures are not so polite. They don't call it a difficult person. When we get up to it, we'll call it a difficult person. They are quite bald about it. They say, enemy. So... You're with your enemy and a neutral person, your good friend, your benefactor, and yourself, five people. And some desperado leaps out from behind something and says, for reasons unmentioned, uh, you cannot travel on, all of you. One of you needs to be sacrificed, and you, Sharon, are the person to make that decision. You, Sylvia, you, Ted, are the person to make that decision. Who do you choose? And Sharon said, I immediately thought to myself, this has got to be a trick question. And I want to answer it correctly. It's funny, isn't it, how we are more interested in getting the right answer to the question and looking good than actually giving the answer that comes to us. It's really so important, this do-it-right business. Anyway, she said, I thought about it, and I tried to go through all the permutations. You think about it for a minute. Who would you choose? So, should we take a show of hands? (laughs) Choose yourself. Choose your benefactor. Choose your enemy. Choose your best friend. Choose a neutral person. Sharon said, I can't choose. Upandita said, great, that's the right answer. He said, now you all did great by telling the truth because I told you Laura's story first because I'm not sure that we can't choose. I think it would be terrible, terrible to choose. It's a Sophie's choice to have to choose. But I think in the end, we would choose and it would be terrible. It is terrible to have to make a choice like that. But in our heart of hearts, we actually know. Everybody who put up a hand here actually knew. And I did notice that the most people put up their hands for the enemy. We really, 
That's the person that we could most part with, really, if we were to tell the truth. And probably, I mean, you've thought about it as I had. I wish that my heart was open to everybody. I'm sure if I were completely wise, incontrovertibly wise, I would know absolutely that everybody is exactly how they are because of complex causes and conditions, lawfully what they are, and not responsible that no one is guilty of anything, that everyone is responsible for everything and no one is guilty of anything and there's no one anywhere that needs to be forgiven. I know that. And nevertheless, my heart leaps up in one direction or the other. We are preferential animals. We just are. We probably need to be in order for the species to survive and for clans to survive and for our children to survive. I wonder how it is. I'm, I'm not sure that the point of this practice is not to be able to choose under some desperate circumstance like that. I think it's a wonderful metaphor and it's a very good teaching story. But I think that what metta practice is about is about keeping the heart non-embittered under all circumstances, keeping it loving, keeping it a, uh, a place of kindness. It would be a marvelous thing to wish well under all circumstances. This is really the practice of forgiveness. I noticed I picked up my messages as I came in, and I was glad that I had thought to say something about forgiveness because all of these questions are about forgiveness. And all people who are trying very hard and outlining for me, I did this and this and this, and it is so hard for my heart to forgive. I think it's all about forgiveness. This is totally forgiveness practice. I think the whole of the practice of arriving at the heart that rests is the heart that's able to forgive everyone and everything for not being exactly what we thought we wanted. Because it isn't. It's difficult. This is really fundamentally a wisdom practice that allows us to see the fundamental truth of, of what the Buddha taught, how hard it is for the heart not to struggle with what is and need for it to be different, and struggle on, on because of that needing. Really, when we've been talking for a couple of days about desire, but really labeling it as craving, the insatiable need to have things be other than they are, how hard it is to say, it's like this, may it be okay. It's a really hard thing to be converted from embitterment, embittered heart to kind heart. I think that's actually what we're doing here. I think that's what we have as a possibility of human beings. That uh, The Buddha said that this, this realm of incarnation was the most fortunate realm to be born into because of all the realms we have the possibility of the 10,000 joys and the 10,000 woes so that we can really notice what lifts us up and have all these difficulties to deal with that will, in the end, convert our heart to kindness. We can change ourselves. 
we can feel like doing something, we can have a certain impulse arise and not do it. That's a huge gift. That's a huge possibility to be able to take my heart embittered, annoyed, irritated, unhappy, and convert it to love is a huge task. And often I think I have thought of, and often people think of this practice as being on behalf of all beings and on behalf of the world. I think it is on behalf of the planet, on behalf of future generations. And primarily in this moment, every moment I convert my heart from any suffering state to love, it has been on behalf of myself. It's been an enormous kindness to myself. It's primarily a kindness to myself to be able to do that. Sally talked last night about, um, she ended with a poem about blessing. And I thought to myself, this is entirely a blessing practice. It's a forgiveness practice, but it's entirely a practice of blessing. The technique is we're going around all day blessing. May you be well in all ways is a blessing. Bless you, bless you, bless you is what we're all saying. When you think about it, if you sit in the dining room and look around and say, all these people, unbeknownst to me, or beknownst to me, and just quietly, are all blessing each other. It's an amazing thing. It's a holy space to sit in. And to realize that you're in the middle of that, all that blessing flying around in the dining room, or in here, it's a great thing. The Latin word for blessing really uh, literally means good speaking. Good speaking. It's good speech to bless, good words to speak well of. I actually think of this practice as right speech of the heart. Many of you I know have done uh, some Buddhist practice before and know about the Eightfold Path that the Buddha taught and the three behavior training parts of the Eightfold Path and the specific part that is the, uh, the teaching on right speech. And really about when we speak to people, our speech should not cause any harm, ever. All of the precepts that we took the first night are about not causing harm. All of the behavior injunctions are about not causing harm. I think about right speech of the heart, the internal speech that goes on in me, as being... um, equally important for me to pay attention to because depending on the speech of my heart, whether or not it comes out of my mouth, if the speech of my heart is unkind or embittered, I will suffer from it. Do you ever find yourself in the middle of kind of an internal snit talking about somebody? When I see that person, how could they have said that to me? They said that to me. When I see them, I'll do that. And I'll say this, and then they'll say that, and I'll feel this, and then they'll feel that. It's a very unpleasant train of thought. If you find yourself in the middle of it, and you check out how you feel, it doesn't feel good. It's a really unpleasant feeling. I actually have certain kinds of catchphrases that let me know that I'm about to embark on some wrong speech of the heart. One of them is if I hear myself saying to myself, inside, but in response to something, just for that, <laughs> that means it's coming some plan of retribution, uh, either in 
word or in deed or in something or other. If I catch myself doing it just for that, it's a revenge fantasy. And it doesn't feel good, even if I don't do it. And it, what is really more important for me to see is if I'm even starting to have a revenge fantasy, the revenge fantasy won't be comfortable, but I must be currently uncomfortable. Otherwise, I wouldn't be having the revenge fantasy. So really, the birthplace of unwise speech or unkind speech or not right speech is really unhappiness in my own heart. I was very, very happy that we introduced the compassion practice today because I really think that there are lots of ways in which we notice suffering states in other people and respond to them in our body and really can and really profit, I think, from unstartling ourselves and wishing them and ourselves well with compassion phrases or compassion practices. But I find for myself, I am mostly doing compassion practice for myself in response to the many times a day that I am suddenly caught in a suffering state, some unhappiness of mind, which I usually think about and talk about to myself. Hmm, what's going on? I don't like this. What am I going to do about it? Long story about how to fix it or how it went wrong. And if I pay really close attention, under the long story, which is continuing on, is the fundamental fact of I'm in pain. That's what's motivating this long story. I'm in pain. I'm uncomfortable. I wish it wasn't here. All things come and go. This pain will end. May it end soon. May I be free of suffering. May I feel contented and pleased. Whatever. Usually my, my compassion phrases lead me back into my meta phrases. But I need to notice first the same thing in myself that I notice about someone around me with obvious outside visible suffering. I find that if I pay attention to my inside, invisible to other people's suffering, that it's a kindness to myself. I keep myself in a place where I can bless. Somebody asked this morning, maybe we'll come back to it a little bit later on, about whether or not this is... Um, why, don't we, uh, why don't we make a wish for enlightenment? And I thought to myself during the day as I thought that over, that I think that the desire to bless is the wish for freedom or the wish for liberation. In any moment that I can bless, I am free from the prison of some habit of mind that has locked me into some self-serving ego need. And I've noticed that there's a world out there. Or even if I've noticed my own suffering, I've noticed suffering and responded with compassion. That my response to that moment is not adversarial. Really, I think to bless, to be able to love, is to be in that moment free. So I think the desire to bless is really the wish for enlightenment. Moment to moment enlightenment. Which is for me really what I'm hopeful for. I don't know about anything else. I think about the ways in which I watch my mind sometimes pick up some story 
and start to run with it this way, that way. Mostly the story begins, hmm, how could they, da da da, whatever it is. And I, I recently began, begun to make it a little sweeter for myself, kind of like a game. Um, there were, for a while, decades ago, a series of movies with Bob Hope, and they were called The Road to Rio and The Road to Morocco. Do you remember the road movies? So I've decided I'm going to think about The Road to Indignation. And I've decided that The Road to Indignation never leads any place good. And so as soon as I see my mind starting with how come, how could, I say, wait a minute, do you want to go there? The more formal way to talk about that is the opening verses of the Dhammapada. This is really from Bob Hope to the Dhammapada, but the opening twin verses of the Dhammapada begin by saying, he robbed me, he abused me. For those who keep these ideas in their mind, unhappiness follows them as the cart follows the horse. That really, things happen to us. We have the possibility of keeping them as ways of making us, we make a story and then the story itself continues to torment it. Or let it go. It's very hard to do, you know. It's, uh, I had a good time last weekend. I was babysitting my two youngest grandchildren who are now uh, three and six. And they're marvelous. They're lovely. And they're three and six. So they alternate between saying the most noble and glorious and wonderful and brilliant things to calling each other names. And they don't learn the names from their parents. Their parents are scrupulously well-spoken people. Uh, But Harrison's already in school. And you go to school for a year or two, you learn some taunt names. And then you come home and you teach them to your three-year-old sister. So in the course of the day, they would report on each other. He'd come in and say, Honor called me a, whatever it was, bad name. And uh, wait for my response. And I actually enjoyed it. I was doing it and I was watching myself do it. Honor called me a shithead. And say, (laughs) people do that sometimes. Oh, okay, then that's the end of the story. I just refused to make a story out of it. Sometime later, Honor came in and reported on him. I can't remember what he did. Harrison did this and this that he wasn't supposed to do. I said, well, you don't need to be the police of the world. That was like a piece of news to her. And I was watching myself doing it. I was getting a big kick out of it. I don't think I was nearly as wise 30 or 40 years ago when their parents were children, but I'm better now. You don't have to be the police of the world. And if I would tell myself that when I get indignant about something, I don't have to be the police of the world either. And these things happen. People abuse. They say bad things. And It's really the stories that we tell ourselves. The, he robbed me, he abused me, he insulted me, he called me a name. That keep the bad feeling going and keep other people as enemies. As we go through this week and go through all these categories, there are differences in the categories and we do have preferences. We are preferential animals. 
That's that's actually it's actually a very brilliant teaching of the of the Buddha, to figure out that we could work with our preferences to help us to open our hearts really, it's by starting with those people we love the most to learn the pleasure of completely open-hearted loving, and then work up to where it's more difficult, and decide, partly because it's so hard to give up that loving state, that it's not worth it. I don't have to pick up this cause. I don't have to make it into a story. I don't have to do something with it. I don't have to make a deal of it. If I don't pick it up, it doesn't become a story. It's the stories, actually, that create the person or the sense of a person who's abused or treated ill or didn't get a fair share. The philosopher Wu Wei Wu said, if there's anyone at home to suffer, they will. Rumi said, God can't come to visit you unless you aren't home. Really means don't make a story. There's a story. There's no room. My metta teacher, Sharon Salzberg, said that uh, maybe metta practice is going to be the universal prayer. When you think about it, somebody sent me a note yesterday and they said, how is this particularly Buddhist practice? You know, it's not particularly parochial. Wishing well is a universal practice, and of course it is. Actually, I think that it's the core of every major religious lineage that endures that it's a central, um, it's a central challenge for human beings to live together without enmity, and at this point in the history of the planet, more and more, the central challenge facing human beings: how will we live together and treat each other kindly, and use the supplies of this planet wisely, and use the planet wisely. We can't be self-serving and have this world endure. And yet, we all want special and have all those needs for ourselves to overcome personal need and be able to instead to substitute when it's wise the needs of everyone is the amazing possibility of human beings. It is universal. I'll read you some of my favorite things. I thought about this yesterday when Sally was reading about the quality of um, the quality of metta, that that love that is uh, without attachment, with no strings attached love. Not asking anything, not requiring anything in return. Impartially offered to all beings. This is a Nyanapanaka Tara. Nyanapanaka died uh, sometime in the last decade. He was nearly a hundred. He uh, lived in Sri Lanka. He was born in Germany. He was a German Jew who went to Sri Lanka when he was in his early twenties after university and became a uh, monk. And uh, 
was a monk for the rest of his life, was the head of the Buddhist Publication Society in Sri Lanka. I think this is beautiful poetry, talking about metta-love. Love without desire to possess, knowing well that in the ultimate sense there is no possession and no possessor. This is the highest love. Love without speaking and thinking of I, knowing well that the so-called I is mere delusion. Love without selecting and excluding, knowing well that to do so means to create love's own contrasts, dislike, aversion, and hatred. Love embracing all things great and small, far and near, be it on earth, in the water, or in the air. Love embracing impartially all sentient beings, and not only those who are useful, pleasing, or amusing to us. Love embracing all things, be they noble-minded or low-minded, good or evil. The noble and the good are embraced because love is flowing to them spontaneously. The low-minded and evil-minded are included because those are the ones who are most need of love. In many of them, the seed of goodness may have died merely because warmth was lacking for its growth, because it perished from cold in a loveless world. Love embracing all things, knowing well that we are all fellow wayfarers through this round of existence, that we are all overcome by the same law of suffering. The Dalai Lama often says, everyone just like me wants to be happy. Love, but not the sensuous fire that burns, scorches, and tortures, that inflicts more wounds than it cures, flaring up now at the next moment being extinguished, leaving behind more coldness and loneliness than was felt before. Rather, love that feels like a soft but firm hand on 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 the ailing beings, ever unchanged in its sympathy, without wavering, unconcerned with any response that it meets. Love that is the comforting coolness to those who burn with the fire of suffering and passion, that is life-giving warmth to those abandoned in the cold desert of loneliness, to those who are shivering in the frost of a loveless world, to those whose hearts have become as empty and dry by the repeated calls for help, by deepest despair. Love that is strength and gives strength. This is the highest love. You probably will recognize. If I speak in the tongues of men and angels but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love is not jealous or boastful. It is not arrogant or rude. Love does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. Does not rejoice at wrong, but rejoices in the right. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecy, it will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For our knowledge is imperfect and our prophecy is imperfect. But when the perfect comes, the imperfect will pass away. 
When I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up my childish ways. Now I know in part, then I shall understand fully, even as I have been fully understood. So faith, hope, love, abide, these three. But that the greatest of these is love. So you may recognize that as um, Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. Someone asked the uh, Jewish sage Hillel if he could tell the, uh, teach them the whole of the wisdom of the Torah while he stood on one foot. And he said, yes, of course. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the rest is commentary. <laughs> Rabbi Akiva, slightly earlier, chose that verse as the most important of the whole first five books of the Bible. I really think that the message is universal. What makes us Buddhist here is that we practice in this particularly brilliant way of using partial, our, 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 our partial love, the fact that we love with partiality to really bring us to a place, or hope to bring us to a place of wholeheartedness. It's just this one way. It's not a better way, it's just a different way. What I actually like to think about, I think I mentioned the first night, is that when the Buddha taught this to monks going um, off by themselves and they were frightened, he taught it and presented it as a, as a, a safeguard, as an amulet against uh, <laughs> fearful things, scorpions and snakes and dark and all the things that they would have to face in the jungle by themselves. And we even say, and when we say the metta resolves, poison and weapons and fire won't harm me. Sometimes when people say to me, do you actually think that's true, that poisons and weapons and fire won't harm you? I actually think they would harm my physical body. But I don't think that's the harm that it's meant. I think it's meant to say you will be safe from having your heart perturbed should you encounter any of those fearful things. You would have a heart so grounded in wisdom and understanding, so um, habituated to a compassionate response that in excess of the distress of the time, the moment, you would not suffer. Because something's going to happen to all of us all, all, all together. I mean, it might not be poisons or weapons or fire, but something will happen to us. Before the time of our death, lots of things happen to us. I think this is the practice of conditioning the heart to be able to do the life without becoming embittered about it, being awake to it, but not embittered. In fact, not only, it's quite different for me from being able to stand it. It's not about standing it. You know, when I began my practice, uh, which is now 25 or more years ago, uh, because all my friends were interested in what I was doing, what my husband was doing, we were 
sort of new in our crowd of doing this kind of thing. And my husband more philosophical than I, and uh, he, uh, then and now, and he would say, I really want to understand life. And I always had this very immediate comment that came after, where I said, not me, I just really want to be able to stand life. <laughs> and actually, I changed. I mean, it was true at the time. I was, I, it was true. One of the chief reasons that I, that I took up this practice is I'm really a fearful person. And probably from my karma or my genes or whatever, uh, some people fret more than other people. And if I, if I said, I won't do it now, we already had one raising of hands, but let's say how many people here think of themselves as chronic worriers and chronic fretters. It's a big number of people who they just, it's part of their genetics. My mother didn't do it, my father didn't do it, so I don't know where it came from, but it's my karma. I have it. But I used to have it more. And I really was frightened about what would happen to me in my life. It's probably clear to you that as soon as we love, we become vulnerable to loss. That's true, isn't it? And we keep continuing to want to love. What we want most of all is to find someone to love us, to be in relationship with us, want to have families, we want to have people we care about. And as soon as we do, we have that much more potential for personal grief. We go back to the story of the helicopters down in Santa Rosa. May it not be the person I know. I am that much more vulnerable to risk because I love a lot of people with partiality, and I choose it. I think most of us do. And what I've really come to see is it's not about being able to stand when terrible things happen. It's being able to really understand them, that they happen. It's like this, things happen. And really to be able to respond with compassion to more than my personal circle of people, because they happen to everybody. I am aware every time that there is some difficulty in the life of someone that I know, and certainly in the life of the people in my family, Someone is dyslexic, someone's got a, uh, an eating disorder, someone has this, someone has that. Suddenly, I realize there's a whole world of that out there that I haven't been paying attention to. And my people who have it are the conduit to the whole rest of the world of people who have it. I think all of my people that are my kin and my friends are my conduits to really sensing the suffering in the world. As I say that, I think to myself, it probably sounds like they are the cause for the development of a compassionate heart. And you know, every time that there's some suffering, I wish I didn't have it. I think it's true, it develops a compassionate heart. And I think to myself every once in a while, it'd be nice if I could study it in somebody else and not have it in myself. It'd be nice to learn it from a distance. But I don't think we learn compassion vicariously. I think we learn it in our own hearts. Everybody who's here has come in a different place, you know. There are people who are here who arrive and their life is in a very difficult place, facing all kinds of challenges. So here they are needing to make 
these blessings of forgiveness, blessings of well-wishing, out of a place of real mental anguish. There are people who are here who are in an extraordinarily wonderfully blessed place in life with lots of wonderful things happening. Actually, so wonderful, it's hard to remember to bless because it's much more interesting to think about the wonderful stuff going on. And when can I go back home and continue to do the wonderful stuff, never mind the staying here and blessing? So tedious, I could go home and be having my fun life. And all day long today, as we saw people, I saw some of this and some of this and some of this and some of this. And you know, if we were the people who met together, that whatever is the story in front of everybody, I said, you can't start to do this practice except but from the place that you are. And from the place of pain, it's really a place of being able to say, may I be free of suffering? May I feel protected and safe? Really connected to that. And for the place of extreme, my cup runneth over exuberance, to say it is extraordinary to feel protected and safe and contented and pleased. I have so much of it. Let me give it away to somebody. Who could I think of that, could, that I could send it to? And then have the pleasure of not, not, not paying attention to how wonderful my life is now. Actually paying attention to it because it's right in front of me. I can't not think about it. So I'll pay attention to it, and I'll take the wonderful gratitude that comes up in me as I think about it, and I'll channel it over to somebody else. It's a much better thing to do. I listen every time somebody says, I'm trying not to think about this or that. It's probably really uh, a wise thing not to do that. The the predominant um, uh, instruction that I think about is whatever's happening, don't duck. It's there. You know? We move right through it. And in this particular in this particular practice, to move through it with all of these extraordinary tools of being able to tailor what we say to what's going on. Really, when I feel myself in some sort of pain, to be able to say the right phrases to myself that will address my pain. And I feel myself in a moment of joy to say things of thanksgiving, which really let me see how wonderful I feel when I am not stuck in suffering. And really to wish it for all beings. May all beings be free of suffering. May all beings be liberated. You know, last night when um, Sally was talking about the kinds of things that Um, confuse the mind and preoccupy it, make it hard to continue to be here with this enterprise of paying attention to the speech of the heart. They were all very wonderful antidotes to those difficult states. What to do if lust came up or how to avoid lust what to do if antipathy comes up, what to do if boredom or restlessness or doubt comes up. All wonderful antidotes. It's also wonderful to know that um, the overriding or overarching one-size-fits-all antidote is just to say blessings of well-wishing. It turns out 
that the consistent saying itself, the consistent wanting, the consistent wishing, the consistent turning of the heart towards that, knowing what else is going on and doing that anyway, really develops concentration in the mind. In that concentrated state, there are, just because it's a factor of a concentrated state, the natural antidotes to all of those confusing hindrances. There's a degree of rapture. may have happened to you. Every once in a while, when you really are into wishing well and it's comfortable and smooth, probably realize that you feel good. Your body relaxes, your hands feel a little warm, sometimes your hands tingle. It doesn't have to be a grand rapture, just a good feeling. Once in a while I feel, ah, this is okay. That feeling of, ah, this is okay, really smooths out feelings of enmity. You'll find as the days go by that people look better to you. Everybody looks better to you. They start looking prettier and nicer. You start liking them more. And the same people doing the same things that annoyed you a little bit a few days ago, they start to be cute in what they do, whatever it is. (laughs) Look at that, coming in late again. (laughs) Banging their utensils so loud while they eat. That's the cutest thing. You know, there's the heart changes. That as the mind settles down and the attention stays focused on one particular aspect of one particular train of intention, may you be well, may I be well, may all beings be well, just blessing, that the one-pointedness of it really causes the kinds of lusts that are so confusing not to happen. Actually, lust is the mind looking around for what can I have that will make me more comfortable? What can I think about that will make me more comfortable? What can I invent? What fantasy can I have that will make me more comfortable? What can I imagine? If you feel comfortable, the mind stops looking around. It's comfortable enough. doesn't have to look for anybody else, anything else. I keep a... Um, CD of gospel music in my car because the most the the cut that I like the best in that whole uh, album is a satisfied mind which particularly has the phrase if you search the world over there's one thing you'll find there's nothing more rare than a satisfied mind it's very good buddhism it's very good dharma that here we are all the time looking for something to make it a little bit more of this, a little bit less of this, a little bit different of this. It's a great relief when the mind says, just this. I don't need another phrase. I don't need better words. I don't need anything else. Just this. And really, it's, it's the just this is the feeling of the heart not having a problem. The feeling of the heart not in any way not ready to bless this moment, to accept it, to bless it, to wish it well. I wasn't here the other night when uh, Guy did his uh, opening talk, so I don't know whether he talked about uh, orange juice. Did he talk about orange juice? Did you talk about orange juice? 
Can I talk about orange juice? <laughs> this is the first of your two things that I'm going to do tonight. The second is coming. <laughs> I'll ask permission as well. Uh, the, the, it's a lovely metaphor. He said the meta mind is something like frozen orange juice. It has everything extra squeezed out of it. And it's just the sweetness is left. I love that idea because I think that the opposite of the metta mind is the mind that's in any way embittered. Because I think the opposite of sweet is bitter. And I think what we're trying to do here is sweeten the mind. Life is difficult. It's all the time problematic. It's all the time challenging. We get startled all the time. It's too much of this. It's not enough of this. I want it different. I want it other. I think we, from the beginning to the end, we are accommodating ourselves to what's going on. My, uh, I've been telling people over the last couple of years, since uh, sitting with Ajahn Sumedho a couple of years ago, that I'm trying to, trying to per- perfect a certain hand gesture that he has. It's a wonderful teacher. He says, when things get difficult, I say to myself, it's like this. And then I'm all right. So I've decided that it's in the hand gesture, that there's a transmission in that hand gesture. (laughs) And that if I could just do the hand gesture right, I'd be suddenly liberated. And sometimes when I teach that, people say, well, you know, teenagers do that all the time. They say, whatever. (laughs) But actually, it's not the same as whatever. It's a little bit the same as whatever, because really... But it's... Whatever has a certain when when it's said by a fourteen year old annoyed at its parents usually means have it your way and I'm a little bit annoyed about this. But <laughs> it's like this means this is the way it is and I'm gonna to try to stop from being annoyed. And that that movement comes from wisdom. It comes from the same wisdom that I talked about yesterday in the forgiveness practice. It comes from the wisdom that it couldn't be other. It's the way it is because it's the way it is. Because of the karma of things, because of how things were forever and ever. This is it. I am the way I am and you are the way you are right now because of everything that ever happened. There is intention, there is change, there is the perfection of the heart. But right now, this is it. And to be in an adversarial relationship with it is to suffer. So I really want soon to end, and I want to end by talking about the progression of uh, objects of uh, meta-resolves that we'll have as the week unfolds. You can guess from what I've said and from what you've been working on that we start from and the people that we love the most and move up soon, relatively soon, to neutral people. Probably you've been aware that there aren't so many neutral people. We make a story on somebody right away that we see from how they sit or stand or walk or eat or arrive in the hall or whatever. But neutral people, people that we don't think about a lot when we're not confronted with them, and enemies. And everybody stays in a category because we have a story. This person is my enemy because of that. This person is my this because of that. This person is my great friend because of this. 
And they, we sort of line them up in our hearts in concentric circles. So these people I can really wish, these people I wish, but not so much. These people I wish, when I, when, I, when I remember them, these people, it wouldn't be so bad if I didn't wish them at all. If I didn't meet them, I don't wish them any ill, but you know, I don't have to go out of my way to wish them well. All those gradations of the heart are a very limiting. I mean, you have to remember who's on what list. And people sometimes, people sometimes move around from one list to another. They jump the orbit, you know, like in, like, like in chemistry, you know, sometimes an atom can jump from one orbit to another. So it's like it jumps from one orbit to another because you forget the story about them. It'd be a wonderful thing to realize that everybody's in that orbit, did what they did, affected us as they did, because of how they are, because of circumstances, not because of badness or goodness or rightness or wrongness. And that really it's much easier to give up the stories. You can remember the stories in terms of who you want to have as a friend or who you want to hang around with or who is dangerous to be with and who is not. So an identifying story, but not a story that changes the heart. I, I think it's uh, my friend Jack's teacher, Nisargadat Maharaj, who said you can put anybody out of your life, but don't put them out of your heart. It'd be a terrific thing to be able to say, I absolutely wish well to everyone. I sometimes remember my grandfather in that context. I hope he was wishing well to everyone. He had a blessing practice that was part of his culture. I think it was a, a, a part of a superstition not to mention someone with a, by name without adding some declining remark after that was made the name safe to mention out in the air. So that he had two things that he would say. He would say, my daughter Gladys, may she rest in peace, always remembered my birthday or whatever it was, but my daughter so-and-so, my cousin Murray, may he rest in peace. Anybody who had parted this plane of existence. And anybody who hadn't, he would say, um, my cousin Ezra, he should live and be well. And uh, my uh, granddaughter Eugenia, may she live and be well. So there were only two things you could say to, about somebody. She should live and be well or she should rest in peace. And I think it was a cultural thing. I think he learned it. And actually, he was a very dear person. Maybe he actually, maybe it taught him something his whole life of declining. I notice that I do only uh, a piece of that practice. I'm thinking of taking it on more seriously. Uh, sometimes when I'm talking to a friend of mine, and we're just really talking in a relaxed way, and I'm about to tell a story, and I say, well, you know, my sister-in-law, may she live and thrive. And then I think, if I'm starting this with may she live and thrive, I'm probably about to do some wrong speech on her. <laughs> and this is an anticipation about that. So... I actually think, may she, you know, if I do it, I have to do it for the right reasons. <laughs> really, the right reason for the conversion of the heart to kindness is that it's the happiest way to live, it's the freest way to live. It's the most vulnerable way to live.
And it's the least isolated way to live. It really connects. Maybe it's the way really to come, I hope, I believe, to be able to say, may all beings be well. Were you meaning to read the poem by Naomi Shahid Nye tomorrow? Because if you were, I won't. Then I will. (laughs) But it was Guy who introduced me to this poem. It's really the wisdom of kindness. Before you know what kindness really is, you must lose things, feel the future dissolve in a moment like salt in a weakened broth. What you held in your hand, what you counted and carefully saved, all this must go so you know how desolate the landscape can be between the regions of kindness. How you ride and ride thinking the bus will never stop, the passengers eating maize and chicken will stare out of the window forever. Before you learn the tender gravity of kindness, you must travel where the Indian in a white poncho lies dead by the side of the road. You must see how this could be you, how he too was someone who journeyed through the night with plans and the simple breath that kept him alive. Before you know kindness is the deepest thing inside, you must know sorrow is the other deepest thing. You must wake up with sorrow, you must speak it, speak to it till your voice catches the thread of all sorrows and you see the size of the cloth. Then it is only kindness that makes sense anymore, only kindness that ties your shoes and sends you out into the day to mail letters and purchase bread, only kindness that raises its head from the crowd of the world to say it is I you have been looking for and then goes with you everywhere like a shadow or a friend. So could you sit for a minute? This talk was given by Sylvia Burstein at Spirit Rock Meditation Center on January 7, 2004. It is an offering of the... Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.